Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Marcus Kane has done an incredible variety of things in his life. He is a man who has worked in business, he's done volunteer work, and he's done teaching. He can also be a bit of a social entrepreneur. He is always figuring out how to get people together to go out, have fun, and to enjoy life. Because this podcast is about his life, I'm actually going to let him tell all of the stories. So, hey, Marcus. Hello. Well, let's start with an overview of some kind. Without going into maybe too much detail just yet, what are some of the jobs that you've had and some of the places that you've lived? Are we talking about from childhood or are we talking in adulthood? Let's start with childhood. Childhood. Okay. So growing up, I started a law and landscape company in fifth grade. Um, my mom and dad even helped me make flyers and I go door to door. This was way back before a ton of non-soliciting signs. And I drummed up business that way. I had no vehicle. I wasn't old enough to drive. So I had to walk with my lawnmower, my trimmer, and my blower all around the neighborhood to uh, my customers. But I did that, um, and then I also uh, caddied at several golf courses in middle school and in high school as well. And in college, I had several internships. Um, one was with uh, Nabisco, which became Kraft, which became Monsanto now. And I went uh, from store to store in the Midwest, in Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, all sorts of different places, and covered people that were on vacation. So I would do inventory ordering, I would take the image products off the shelf and determine displays and what was the best way to position Nabisco's line of products uh, in, in the food industry. It was really amazing. Um, also interned for a CPA firm doing um, various accounting work, my dad's investment firm. And I did a warehouse job in college as a change of pace where I priced various items and moved boxes and uh, did uh, various other things in the warehouse in that sense. And um, as an adult, I've had a lot of jobs in accounting and finance and sales and been an entrepreneur, being a part of several different organizations and the nonprofit world, being a high level exec in a couple of different nonprofits and volunteering uh, along that front along the way and even running uh, an investment firm as well. And now I am transitioning to be a teacher, getting my master's in elementary education through University of St. Mary. They have a open park campus and we'll hopefully finish that up with, within the year and be teaching full-time in my own dedicated classroom. You know, you're kind of a Thomas Jefferson. You're just a man who has done absolutely everything and could do maybe practically everything. So I always kind of wonder what type of kids people were. I would really just love to get into your secret origin story. Um, how did you fit into the family and what type of a kid were you? So I was the oldest child, and I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Problem Child, but it was something that it didn't directly parallel my life, but there were moments that I had growing up where my parents were thinking, oh gosh, is it going to get any easier with the others, other two? I had a, ended up, they ended up having a sister who's four years younger and brother who's 10 years younger. Um, I was bright in math, and I struggled a bit in reading ELA, but it was something that in school, my attention wasn't always there. And it was sort of like a moving target. My parents tried to figure it out with the help of some medical professionals. And it's something I'll speak openly about. Um, 
I, I struggled with attention deficit disorder, which morphed into ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And they couldn't quite ever get the meds figured out. They did get it figured out, but and I had to be actually taught how to study. So um, school is not something that came naturally to me unless it was math. So I would get in trouble for talking a little too much, surprise, surprise, in class. But it was just one of those things. I joke, I say lovingly, problem child. But it was something where it just took quite a bit for me to wake up and realize the importance of school and the amassing of a diversified knowledge um, and why we were going through what we were going through in school and learning about routines and so forth within the classroom outside. I uh, did, I was one of those kids that I played several sports, soccer, wrestling, golf, even did basketball for a few years, baseball for several years, um, did track and field, up, um, did a whole bunch of different things uh, up until high school. But it was something that at times when I put my mind to it, I did really well, but I had to be tuned in. And it was a matter of developing those routines, those habits, surrounding myself by the right influences, taking to heart what my parents said, that it would ultimately get me to where I wanted to go and put me on that great trajectory to where I was able to do all that I was able to do in college and beyond. Because college is where I really turned, put on the leadership cap um, between my fraternity and um, Student Government Association being on the executive board for several semesters in both. But it was something that I took sort of the hard road growing up in a lot of ways, made life a lot more difficult on myself and on my family. But it was something that um, I ultimately learned my ways I call it sort of a conversion of heart, not to sound cliche, um, that took place later on in high school and really um, allowed me to put together the foundation that has guided me to this day. Well, I, you bring up two really good points, and they're kind of opposite. So I just want to see how you went from dark to light, so to speak. Um, you say that there was this need for a conversion of heart and that maybe you were really kind of a terrible student until you turned into maybe an excellent student. Uh, and then also too, you went from being kind of a, I don't know, the class clown or the kid not paying attention mm -hmm. to suddenly being in all these leadership positions. So how did this transformation come about? Can you give us just a little bit more on the before and on the after? So it was something where, um... I grew up in a very strict household, let me be clear, which a lot of us did. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I don't take that into consideration. It's not truly an anomaly by any means because a lot of us grew up in strict households. But it was something where I'm appreciative for that today. I was not growing up, so I was a bit rebellious against that. So you have that at play as well. But you had something where the medical piece came in, um, things got figured out with some medicines to help me out, some supports were put in place to where I had outside uh, person I met with to learn about study skills, taking notes, uh, something that my parents could help me with, but it was something that was better to pull in somebody this neutral third party to assist me in getting on track there. And so after freshman year of high school, that's when it clicked. Here's what happened freshman year of high school. That's why I played three sports. I didn't make academics the priority. I was tired. I'd come home from practice and I would put things off. Even though I learned to study a bit in eighth grade from a wonderful lady named Gertie Max. Um, it was something I really didn't put in practice freshman year. And my parents sat me down then a freshman year after having gotten in a, just a shade of trouble at uh, Rockers High School. When I say a shade, I mean close to not being asked to come back. My parents sat me down and said, we are not sending you to this great high school for you to mess around and not take things seriously and have your priorities straight. So I opened my eyes and said, okay, I have to get on track or else. The or else was I would be sent to 
um, military academy in Richmond, Missouri called Wentworth, which is now um, no longer in operation. And I was scared to death about being away from family in high school. So that was the epiphany I had at that point. And I got on track. Sophomore year started off a little rough, but I ended up being on honor roll a lot of the rest of high school, graduating with a very respectable GPA. Not a 4.0, but to recover from my freshman year where I had a lot of C's was an impressive feat. So there's where it truly happened. I got more involved um, and put some good influences around myself the rest of high school. I really came into age senior year where I have the friends I have to this day. Not that the people I ran around with before then aren't good people. I just sort of evolved and was gravitated towards these people. And it really helped me in my development and growth, uh, both as a young man, as a student, but in being a good example in life as well. Okay, okay. That's really a very entertaining and interesting answer. Um, I definitely want to come back to the leadership question. You sort of uh, outlined the before. We'll get to the after, I guess. Um, yes. Tell us just a little bit about maybe your first few jobs out of college. Actually, what did you get your degree in? And then what were those first jobs out of college? So I picked it. My going to college, uh, my parents, my specifically my dad wanted me to be an engineering and business double major. But Academically, that'd be, I think, something like an eight-year path. And so my academic advisor said, unless you want to be here uh, well into your mid-20s, then you'll, you'll want to look at just picking, focusing on one area. So I ended up doing finance and accounting, very gifted in math. And so it was a natural progression, especially seeing that my dad was in financial services, had his own company at the time. And so that's what I did. When I graduated college, um, I interviewed with quite a few companies. My GPA was very uh, just so-so in college. I sort of resorted to my old ways a bit, but it was for a lot different reason than high school. I was so involved with leadership that it came to the detriment of my grades uh, because of my leadership uh, commitments. And it was something that I was networking. I was working on my public speaking skills. I was working on my writing skills, reading a ton. I was doing all these great things, but I just didn't completely uh, translate everything over into my academic Areas, but graduating college, um, I interviewed after graduation. Did the I slept on my buddy's couch for several weeks, and ended up at a wonderful company called Homecomings Financial in Dallas, Texas. I wanted to be an academic advisor um, for Texas Christian University, where I go travel the country and recruit. Not an academic advisor. I can't remember the exact exact title of it, but you travel the country and you try to recruit people to come to, to school there. Um, in that sense, but they didn't offer me. They offered me after I had accepted my homecoming's financial position starting in the middle of July, sorry, beginning of July. Um, and so I was a man of my word and I said, I am not, I called TC back and said, I cannot accept it. I'm just touched, but I already committed to another company, homecoming's financial, and I stuck with it. Uh, well, uh, I know a fair number of people in my life that would have said, well, that's my dream job. That's what I wanted to do, number one, and would have reneged on the offer, but I wanted to be a man of my word and start off on the right foot. So I was a cash accountant. I did a lot of things with cash flow for uh, Homecomings Financial in Dallas. They were a GMAC, General Motors Acceptance Corporation subsidiary, and uh, they dealt with mortgage banking. So I did that. And then I was promoted two years in to uh, a position called the Universal Loss Mitigation Specialist. And with that, um, we looked at their distressed assets, all their all their loans that were not 
per se performing, that means they were not current. And we were trying to work out solutions with borrowers that would be beneficial to our investors and our borrowers alike. So we all had pools of loans, portfolios, uh, several hundred loans, and you were on the phone, you were writing, you were, you were doing cost-benefit analysis, all these different things to figure out what's the solution that we could come up with that would help out the investor and the borrower. So if they wanted to leave a house, well, what was the best way that we could let them exit gracefully? If they wanted to stay, how can we preserve home ownership? And this was way, way, way before they talked about all these other home ownership initiatives. We were sort of on the cutting edge, I felt, um, in the mortgage banking industry, trying to partner. We even had a team of people that would look to see how can we modify, how can we change the terms of their mortgages to keep people in the property, given a change in their financial situation, and allow them to stay. Um, it's, it was really an incredible process. I worked with some amazing people that now have gone on to been, be major players, major exec, execs in um, mortgage banking around the country for places like City, Fannie Mae, um, Wells Fargo, uh, Nation Star, just to name a few of the big of the big places in this country. So, well, um, I, I want to go ahead. Sorry, no, that's right. Those were the first couple of jobs. They were the same company for a duration of almost five years before I went back to work for my dad's company. Um, after that point. Well, just knowing you, you're a very social, very outgoing person. And some of these seem like kind of back office, crunch the numbers, maybe talk with a few people per day. And um, the one job, your dream job, travel the country, sort of be a ambassador for the college. You speak with the young people. These jobs seem like they're both within your skill set. But when it comes to outgoing versus, you know, more introvert, introverted, it just seems like they're opposites. Did your spirit just die a little bit do, doing the number crunching job? Um, looking back, you would think that at the time because of the fact that it was very, very much more relational driven, the position to be an quote unquote ambassador for the University of TCU. But it was something I made the most of it. And we worked in a very vibrant young culture in Dallas. Texas at the time. And this company that we worked for, they had a lot of events outside to where we could socialize. We had a company softball team. We had a flag foot was not flag. It was not flag. The first several years, it was a tackle football tournament over a weekend where the execs come out. We did all these fun things time and time again, quarterly updates followed by um, a little gathering afterwards in the top four of our building. It was, they really set the tone, the exact executive state in our building and in our other offices and beyond because our headquarters was in Minneapolis, actually, but we had offices in California, um, Pennsylvania, and in Texas. But they made it to where it negated a lot of that, to where there was a lot of interaction. There was a lot of cross-functional teams going on at our company, working on um, process and efficiency improvements, did a lot of that kind of work. So I got, I was able to tap into the creative aspect of my personality for the betterment of the company, for the betterment of the customers we serve. And once I moved the loss mitigation rule, there was a ton of interaction on the phone because you're trying to get a hold of these people. You're having candid conversations. You're trying to show you have a heart and you really do care about them. You're trying, you have to make business decisions that make sense, but at the same time, push comes to shove. You want to work something out, even if it's like on the fence uh, for the benefit of your customer. But it was something that there was a lot of customer facing in the second rule as universal loss mitigation specialist, but it was something that once I shifted back to my dad's company and I did even that much more interaction with people um, is when I sort of relit that, relit that fire. Well, in a way, this career just seems like it would have been perfect for you then 
just from what you've said, plus what I know about your number crunching ability and your business ability and your ability to get into technical details. Um, did you kind of want to take that career as far as you possibly could have? Uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, it seems like you could have had a 30 or 40 year career there. What made you not want to do that anymore? Well, here's the thing. I worked with some great people. I'm, um, and it was something that we had things. Let me just add on, elaborate upon my previous answer. We had a birthday celebration every month with various desserts and treats. And we did like, we played baseball inside with like a wiffle ball. We'd have bagel Friday, breakfast Friday. We had a workout center in there that you could go any time of day. It, they were flexible. They let me set my hours in my first job out of college. Let that sink in for a moment. You go in and they offer you and they say, what hours do you want to work? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it sounds great. I have to work an honest day, but that just shows the kind of commitment they had to their people where a lot of times companies around the world don't realize that and they end up cutting people, cutting people to say it's a cost cutting measure and they don't, they don't realize the value of human capital, but it's something that you had all that going and yes, it would have made so much sense to go to the ambassador out, but here I was able to find two my skills, find out my identity. And before I was springboarded into my dad's company, the way I got springboarded and transition made that transition was, was tough. I mean, I went from being on a um, leadership team with a lot of people to work in a smaller company. And I'm going to go turn on the lights and the lights have turned off in my room. Um, so we, I ended up doing that, but it was something that you're right on the surface that made the most sense. I could have made a career out of it. And sometimes at points in life where I've encountered some challenging times, I will say, well, what if I had gone that path? But it's something that, I knew my past those people again. I've stayed in touch with them, and they actually did. I would actually go on to work with uh, several of those people that became execs at another company a few years later in portfolio management job. But it was something that it made sense at the time where it was supposed to be. I mean, we even had a group of people that would meet with borrowers. Um, that was one of the initiatives at our office to walk through in person to put a personal touch there on things. We had um, Create Great Awards where if you create a process or efficiency improvement, you got the certificate. and. The, just the fact, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a company with that kind of culture. I know people say, hey, we've got the best culture. A lot of companies tout that. But when you've got a company giving you over a month of vacation in your first job out of college, again, are you kidding me? I, I use that for emphasis um, when a lot of companies will give you one, two, maybe three weeks. But all these kind of benefits and perks, in addition to creating a workplace to where you could cut off work and go home and truly be at home and not have to have that blurred boundary, which we see in this technological age. So um, I ended up in my dad's company. He had a employee that he mentored who was a former um, accountant at one of the big, it used to be big six. And it used to be, I think, big eight before that. Um, but I may be predating myself. And he came over, my dad mentored him for 17 years. They had, um, he kept trying to buy in, did not end up buying into my dad's company successfully. And they ended up in a, bit of uh, litigation where my where the employee left and tried to steal business. And it was something that was very difficult. Well, my dad went through that and he needed somebody he could trust. So he brought me in and said, you know, it's time to come back. I didn't come initially, but later, several months later in the year, uh, I decided to come back and said, hey, okay, I'm ready to come back. I had some other reasons, but the big thing was to, in my mind, was to help my dad out. He needed somebody he could try and truly could trust after having had somebody betray his trust and then went through that litigation, but it was something, it was time for me to come back. Had that not happened, 
I would have waited till my dad retired to look at taking over and having a transition and keeping the business and the family. That would have been, uh, I'm trying to do the math here. That would have been another 20 years. Mm, yeah. That would have been a lot longer period of time. Well, so. and, and gosh, it just seems like this company is ideal. It just seems that from what you've outlined, it's both social, but it's also, you know, you can kind of work by yourself when you need to. Uh, they are just expanding your skill sets on many, many things from technical to leadership left and right. You get to travel. There's lots of perks. They're committed to your development. Were you just a little bit heartbroken to leave? I was very heartbroken to leave. And I remember pulling out of Dallas, I won't say what year, uh, on December 14th. And I remember having the U-Haul behind my SUV and I was like, wow, this is actually happening, I'm leaving. Yes, I'm coming home, that's great in one sense, but it was very very much another sense of mixed bag of emotions because here I am leaving all these friends that I had built up over four and a half, nearly five years period of time all these wonderful people from all around the country. Cause Dallas, a lot of people don't know what Dallas is like. They think maybe a bit country, but there's, it's a country element, but there's, it's a melting pot for people all around the country. It's one of the best places to work. It's a technology hotbed. There's a ton of engineers that come down from the Midwest and work in Dallas. There's, there were so many telecom companies and other opportunities, places like Texas Instruments, for example, um, being headquartered down there. And so I was really sad to leave cause that was my life for many years. And I had lived away from Kansas City for, geez, nearly 10 years. Yes, I would come back and visit and I would work in the summer up here, but I was, my life was down there. So that was the hard, it was very difficult. But at the same time, I knew it was a new chapter being opened and I was going to be upbeat and optimistic about where that was going to lead, despite the fact that I knew my dad was dealing with some challenging circumstances. I, I knew deep down that this would all work out and play out how it was supposed to be, even though uh, I was a bit sad to to be leaving Dallas and in that particular endeavor. I mean, you're talking about a company, Tim, where when I left, I wrote a improvement to one of our technical communications for our customers that we would send out to evaluate their situations. And I don't want to get too much caught in the weeds with it, but it was such a great company to where I asked uh, the manager, or I cannot remember because it was so long ago, my manager made sure I received a performance incentive bonus check for that after I left. That's almost unheard of because it would be proprietary of the company I developed when I was at the company. And they, lo and behold, a month later after I left, I get, I get a direct deposit in my bank account. And it's those kind of things that left an indelible mark on me from my time there. It, it truly could have been a case study for any business school around the country on how to run a company effectively to serve your customers and your investors, which we both know are, can be competing interests a lot of time. To be able to weigh those and balance those was nothing short of incredible while maintaining a culture where people had high morale and were being developed and really truly built to succeed no matter what their role was. Man, well, I have a suggestion for you. You don't have to take it, but I just want to make it. Are you ready for it? Yes, go right ahead. I think that you should write either a book or do a series of blog posts or maybe a series of podcasts just explaining this particular company as the ideal company. You could call the book The Ideal Company. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea because... There's a lot of alumni from this company and somebody wrote a post the other day and immediately a bazillion people, I don't know exactly how many, immediately weighed in. They're like, I miss that place. There's not a place like it. 
we all echo the same sentiments, unless you were one of those people that fell short of performance and <laughs> didn't exactly leave the company the, the way you wanted to. But on the whole, the lion's share of people love that company. And it was just the way that culture emanated from the top down, as we've heard, it's cliche, but when you've got a company that really wants to see you succeed, that isn't just focused on metrics and performance reviews, and that goes the extra mile time and time again, it, it just shows a lot about its true colors. Let me get, let me throw another story where we're at it. Um, a few weeks in, maybe a month in, or maybe it was two months in, there's another guy from TCU who's in another fraternity that I didn't really know in undergrad, but I came to know because he worked in the department next to me. We had one of the vice presidents and one of the human resources uh, top people uh, one day invited us to go to a baseball game. We're thinking, do we have to make up our work from that day? They just took us to a Texas Rangers game and drove us there and paid for our hot dogs and our sodas and stuff. I mean, they didn't have to do that. We, we were just blown away. Um, my buddy, his name's Nathan. We looked at each other like, what's going on here? Like, are we, <laughs> is this just how the kind of are? Did they see something in this? But it was just the kind of company they were, whether it's that or whether it's giving that company tickets to Dallas Stars games that they would give to employees that were doing a really good job. They give them to department heads and then they um, delegate those out. I mean, time, I have so many different examples that regardless if you like sports or not, there's just so many opportunities to be rewarded. And then their company Christmas gift, where they spend a ton of money, they throw a Christmas party and a dance at a local um, hotel in their ballroom. I mean, time and time again, they showed that they were committed to us and it was far beyond a monetary commitment. It was, it was about allowing us to have a true fulfilling lifestyle, both at work and at home. So I will come up for air. Yeah, you have to write this book. You seriously do. Well, Let's chip gears a little bit, and then let's talk about you working for your dad. Um, mm -hmm. You're obviously doing it because he needs you and because you're more devoted to family than anything. So what was that like? Um, I guess you could start anywhere you want. I, you know, you come home, you start working for your dad. What does that entail? It's a blurred line because we had several employees at the time that came back to work for my dad. And he has to show that there's no perceived bias towards me. So he had a very high standard. And my dad grew up in a strict household as well, stricter than, even stricter than when I grew up then. And even though he emulated that because he thought it was right and would instill the right values in me, the work ethic, the habits, and help me become a respectable human being, the workplace changed things. It blurred the lines between father-son relationship. Did we have some great moments? You better believe it. Um, during that time, that I worked there, my dad bought a lake, mom and dad bought a lake house, and we would go up on like a Friday, um, right after the markets closed, and go up to the lake for the weekend, work on the lake house, <coughs> on fixing it up, spend time just enjoying nature. There's a lot of great moments there, but there's a lot of tough times where we're working really late, we're trying to figure out the financial markets. I mean, you think back to the subprime mortgage crisis that happened in the late 2000s, and dealing with, with the market back then was a bear, no pun intended, and trying to assuage people's fears, trying to, try to talk to them off the ledge and to say, hey, listen, you know, the long-term rate of return is just around 10%. I know it fluctuates, but back then it was just, I think, shy of 10%, the long-term rate of return since the inception of the stock market. And just helping people see that, hey, things will bounce back. This is not the end of the world, despite all these um, debt instruments that help contribute to that financial crisis. That, that's a whole other book that I thought about writing, but Thomas Sowell beat me to it years ago. 
writing about housing boom and bust. Right, right, right. But it was, I've read it. But, but it's one of those things. Working for him was difficult. A lot was expected of me. It wasn't a, hey, you punch in at 8 a.m. Hey, it's you can head at 3 o'clock. You're my son. This wasn't like Tommy Boy. It was the polar opposite, the antithesis. And it was something that my dad was firm but very fair. And looking back, that's a, really the best way to capture the essence of the work environment. He would check in to see, okay, I had to introduce the value proposition of Sunflower Asset Manager, our company, to um, prospective investors and to make sure that I knew it through and through. It's a whole Stephen Covey principle of understanding and then seeking to be understood. And it was something that I had to learn so much of. I had to pass securities exams so I could be properly licensed. I was studying for the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner designation, because it's one of the distinguishing credentials in the industry. But it was something that he wanted to see, okay, how many people are you writing? How many people are you calling? There was a lot asked of me. Are you and helping with um, the accounting, working with our accountant hand in hand, preparation of financial statements, keeping them our bank reconciling our bank statements, sort of a jack of all trades, Swiss Army knife. And it was something I really relished, but it was difficult because emotionally it just changed the complexion of my dad and I's relationship. There were times we didn't see eye to eye growing up, but we worked on that over the years. And as I matured and I actually grew up and opened up and opened up my eyes, it became much better. And it was something working together. I think it was a good experience, but it put a lot of stress on both of us, especially given the nature of our past relationship and just what we were dealing with, seeing that a lot of the, several of those years were during the financial crisis. And it was something that I would ultimately end up leaving the company to go out, get outside experience. It was something where we made the decision on several fronts for multitude reasons made sense. And in our eyes, we thought, okay, a few years later, once I've got some additional experience, when dad's ready to step aside, boom, I come back in, I could be his buyout because my brother had no interest. Um, my sister was working on her becoming a doctor of mental health. And so it was just something that it made the most sense for me to do that. And it's not a business that can really be sold. It's not like, think about um, like a Chick-fil-A where fr your franchisee, where you can sell. It's not like that. It's when you're trying to convert the value um, of an intangible service like that it's something where you really need to have some sort of key tie to keep the client base and that's what we thought he'd be able to capitalize that off that and that would be his de facto retirement plan in addition to his other assets that him and mom had accumulated over the years well just so that people understand it was sunflower asset company and management sunflower and, asset management and it was an investment firm so basically what people are doing is they are purchasing your father's wisdom you know, he says, hey, invest in company ABC and invest in, you know, Acme Incorporated, just like Wiley Coyote. And um, that's what people do. They just follow his judgment. They follow his expertise. So it can't really be sold per se. But I suppose if he had a, I don't know, a corporate vice president who was working for him or a son who was raised in his ways, then people would think, well, the son is just like the old man. So I think I'll stick with this firm. Is that basically correct? Yeah, it's, that's really a good way of, of summing it up. It's something where he, my dad uh, worked for a bigger firm and then went off on his own in 1984 when he founded Sunflower Asset Management. And he received recognition from like Money Magazine as one of the top stockbrokers in the country. He received other prestigious um, awards for how good a job he did in the financial planning. I mean, these words all used interchangeably, investment advising, financial planning, wealth management. Uh, there's all sorts of words, but he would go on to build a, a business that 
that grew not too far off from 100 million, which is pretty incredible for a one-man shop, even though he had his partner as well that helped him go out. His partner, the one that left the company that I replaced, would help him go out and market because my dad liked to be more the wizard, the guy behind the curtain, making things happen, helping people attain their investment goals predicated on their timeline, investment objectives, and so forth. And he would rather not do the marketing. He did the marketing over the years. And he, and I'll tell you a story in a second about that, but it was something that he had households all across the country that he managed wealth out, but he wanted to make sure it was like a marriage. It was a good fit. So just because you had money doesn't mean that he was going to take you on board and help you uh, work towards achieving those objectives and building for retirement or whether it might be leaving a legacy for your family or any, any sort of, um, combination goals, but it was something he learned about that marketing aspect years ago. Um, he, he sold door-to-door disability policies right out of college um, in one of his first jobs, and he was struggling with it. They would go to a small town in Southeast Kansas, again, way before the, a lot of the not, no, no solicitor signs. They would go to a small town, spend the night, and then go knock on doors and try to sell these disability policies. And one night he was on a, having a particularly tough road trip in, trip in Southeast Kansas. I cannot remember the town. I want to guess that it was like Chanute or Fredonia, but I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to have to ask my mom about that. His boss told him, he said, stop feeling sorry for yourself, Kane, and get out there and sell some policies tomorrow. And gave him just like a real eye-opening talk. The next day he went out and he did. He had a change of art and said, okay, you know, I'm going to go out and do this. And he sold 10 policies, which is a big, big deal. So he learned... Um, he was always had a voracious appetite for reading and he put together all this collective knowledge from mentors and from reading and was able to go out and do that. So he wanted to shift in his later years to where he did the research, he did portfolio construction. He wrote an investment commentary that educated on current events, politics, portfolio level strategy for clients, inspirational quotes, and even inject some stories as well. And he even talked about politics because he had everybody on every political end of the spectrum as clients. So he wrote something that was believable, credible, from as about as unbiased a point of view as he could, because as far as it impacted the financial markets, because that's what the clients want to hear. They don't want to hear you pandering to them. They want to hear um, something that is straightforward and makes sense and really cuts through everything um, to where you can really have a good, clear picture of the financial markets. So. Well, he must have been very successful because he went from creating the company to having a hundred million under management. That's very amazing. Yeah, he built it up over the years. He he went after, and I'm going to be very, I'm going to tread very lightly here because uh, as pertains to the company in town. But he got in and was able to give presentations one particular good sized company in town uh, to retirees, and they were able to pull in a lot of retirees from that company and build their business in the back of it in conjunction with giving educational seminars. Um, they pitch to accountants because accountants are fiduciaries. They have to put their client's interest above their own. So in the investment business, there used to be, now there still is, but a lot of people have migrated to the fiduciary standard, which is a higher standard. There's two standards, fiduciary, put your client's interest above your own. And there's a suitability standard where is an investment suitable for a client? So I could say, Tim, you could be my client. I could say, hey, Tim, um, I think uh, Apple, let's just go with a name that's at the top of everybody's heads, is a suitable investment. And I steer you towards Apple and I steer all these other clients towards Apple. But what I'm not telling you per se is that I may have 10,000 shares of Apple and I want to see it do well. So I'm going to push all you clients and anybody else under the sun in there because I have a conflict of interest. Right. So right. the traditional standard, you have to be, it has a much higher bar for you when you're proposing investments for your clients. And so it was something that 
building on the back of accountants, saying I'm a fiduciary too, the accountants could pitch to their clients, send them over and know that they're going to do what's in their best interest, also with the retirees. And then also he had some friends that were clients, but that was not the major part of his business. And in the investment business, when a lot of people get into it initially, it's, hey, contact everybody under the sun that are your friends. Everybody's a prospect. But I had uh, somebody years ago tell me, I read a book called The Art of Selling Intangibles, which I still have on my bookshelf at home. Great, great book. Um, that gave me a lot of ideas, letter writing, how to follow up with people. But um, I had somebody tell me, and I'll, I'll keep him anonymous because he's become a bigger, bigger deal here in town. He told me there are four kinds of prospects. There are deer, bears, rabbits, and spiders. Spiders are dead out of the gate. So think of somebody that's a who's who in Kansas City that everybody under the sun goes after. You, and that they have a longstanding investment relationship maybe with a bank trust department or someone else. You're not going to get them. doesn't matter how much golf you play with them. doesn't matter how many times you go out to eat. doesn't matter if your wives or friends. doesn't matter. You're not going to get them. Spiders, you're dead out of the gate. Don't waste your time. Rabbits, you spend a ton of time. So you maybe have initial coffee with them. I love coffee meetings because it's low-key and someone could leave right away if they want to. Easy to exit. With rabbits, you maybe meet with them once. You follow up. They're like, oh, not now, over and over again. Oh, well, I just don't know. And you just keep wasting your time. Rabbits, you chase them around. Doesn't really give you much if you want to think of hunting. Bears, everybody goes after bears, but these are ones that are attainable. Bears are hard to hunt. So you get one once in a while, but you can't build your business on the back of bears. So you get them when they come in, but that's that's great. It adds icing the cake, as I say. Deer are what you go after and build your business off of, no matter what you are, what your wear is, whether it's a service or whether it's a product-based business. And the deer, you get a lot out of it. And if anyone's ever had venison, if they eat meat, it's a really, it's a lean, it's one of the healthiest meats. And it's something, there goes my lights again. It's something that um, you really get a lot out of when you get a deer and they are attainable. So you figure out your prospects, you classify them accordingly. You spend your time uh, um, on the bears here and there because you need some, but you spend a lion's share of your time on what you classify as deer and your prospects and you have the right approach and you know what you are trying to sell to them, then you're going to achieve a lot of great results. And it's a constant fine tuning of your approach. And my dad did a great job with that. I've been a decent salesman. I wouldn't say I was anywhere close to as good a salesman as him when I've had, when I've done it in the financial services or when I did it in physical products um, with recycled plastic furniture, but it's something that it's not a, Hey, shotgun approach as I call it. It's truly a evaluate each prospect, know what they're saying, what they're not saying, read the bias signals. Cause a lot of times people are afraid uh, when there's a bias signal. If for say, let's again, go with you, Tim, if you were meeting with me and you said, uh, hey, Marcus, you know, I just don't know what to do with this 100000 in the bank. I have no clue about your financial situation, but maybe you sat down and said, I just don't know what to do. Um, I know you're in the business, but yeah, I just don't know what to do. Ding, ding, ding. That's a buy signal. Hey, Tim, let's sit down. Let's go through uh, what, what your risk tolerance is, your past investment experience. Boom, boom. But there, you'd be surprised how many people are afraid to ask those questions when they see the buy signal or to pounce got to strike while the iron's hot or and you, the flip side you've got to be resilient and be patient enough to bide your time i think of years ago i had a client that i he told me he's like when i die marcus and again i'm keeping names out of it to preserve confidentiality so when i die then the family knows to deal with you period and i was like okay i've heard this before i trusted him i believed him in his word but it took several years he was really sick with the disease and i remember going to um the wake night before his funeral and his widow 
literally talked to me as I walked up in the line and went up at the front of the church. I'm like, of all times, she said, we need to sit down and discuss finances. And that told me then and there, I was like, wow, this is getting done. And they did. They followed through. And they were great clients for many years. But it's something that you you never know where a prospect's going to come from. And you have to be ready to be able to clearly articulate your value proposition and to be able to interact in a way that's genuine and sincere and shows that you have their best interests at heart. You, know, you said so many good things in that. Uh, I, this is going to be terrible, but I'm only going to pick up on just one thing. And it's this, okay? So we've got the spiders, the rabbits, the bears, and the deer. I want the deer. How do I pick the deers out of a crowd? How long does it take you to figure out what a person is and, hey, that's a deer? I hate to put a per se timeline because I wouldn't be doing it justice. Sometimes you know right away within five minutes of talking to someone. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes years. It just depends on who who the person is or people, if you're talking about a household, that you're trying to evaluate. And it's something that, to me, it's a tried and true process. You're taking everything together collectively in your analysis and coming to that determination. And it's something where um, with that one, like with that particular story I just told, I realized over time that that was going to be a deer, especially closer to when he was really sick. But I didn't think out of the gate that was a deer. I thought it was more like a like a a spider where, yeah, right, this is really not going to happen. Or a rabbit. It could have been either. Sometimes they cross over into each. They move into one or other. Or maybe it comes to the very end. And it's somebody that's a bear or a deer. And all of a sudden they become a spider. And you're just like, whoa, what happened? And then you've got to bounce back and say, no, I'm not going to let that phase me. Um, that's why I always use the phrase, etch your successes in stone and write your failures in the stand. I use it when I speak to uh, kids of various grade levels, which I've been doing the past six years in Kansas City. And I, I just use it, period. I try to live by that motto. But it's something that when you go through that process, I don't have it mapped out. I just trust a combination of my head and my heart when making um, the determination of if, if, if somebody was a deer, a rabbit, a bear, or a spider. Spider was pretty easy. <laughs> Bears were pretty easy. It, the rabbits and the deer that were the hardest um, for, I think, pretty pretty clear reasons. Okay. So. Okay. Fair enough. Um, in your 30s, when I knew you in your 30s, you just seemed to be the man who was everywhere. Uh, you were always creating social events. You were attending other people's events. You were just very plugged into a lot of things. Um, and then just in the middle of this, a really terrible tragedy befell your family. And I would just like to know the background and the story of this tragedy. So um, I was still working outside my dad's company. I would help him with some things over the years on some more technical things because much like a generation... <laughs> Technology doesn't necessarily come naturally. And so there were some things I would help him with. Uh, he was gifted in many ways, but technology was one that he was so-so in. Um, so I was working at a wonderful company, a local company called uh, Jayhawk Plastics in their furnishings division as their director of business development. And uh, my dad was out visiting Colorado. And you can't really visit Colorado. He was out visiting his dad and his sister, his youngest uh, sibling in his family, and uh, his brother-in-law out in Littleton, a little suburb of Denver. Um, we went through a period of time, uh, my grandfather, my mom's side, passed away in December 2013. And then 
my grandmother passed away, uh, my dad's mother, in June. But he had to go out there as the executive of his estate to deal with some things. He thought, hey, let's go fishing. Him and his dad loved the outdoors. My dad was a Boy Scout growing up. His dad led his pack. I don't know the terminology because I only did Boy Scouts for like one year. I think they're and, a troop. Uh, true. Okay. So they, they, would, um, they went fishing in this area, not too far from the mountains. Uh, I say mountains, but it was very rugged terrain. Um, along the South Platte River, just southwest of Wilton. And I won't get into all the details. Um, it's something that's, I've really made my peace with this, but uh, we don't fully know what, ha- what happened despite a lengthy report from many of people. But um, his vehicle, uh, him, uh, my grandfather, his dad, vehicle went off the side of the road and they both succumbed to injuries from the accident. My dad actually got life flighted to Wilton to their hospital. And it was just a horrific day. And again, I don't want to get too hung up on the details that day, but it was something that nothing, nothing prepares you in life for the phone call. Um, and I happened to be stopping by my mom's house and dad's house because dad was out of town to have dinner with mom. And I just remember the horrified look on her face. And then an hour later, getting a call back that, that they weren't able to save him in the hospital was just horrible. And then I'm thinking, I've got a company to run. I didn't even shed a tear. And some people may say my priorities were off, but I'm thinking of all his clients and how something needs to be done the next morning on the Monday morning. And then I called Jayhawk Plastics and I said, okay, um, here's what's happened. And I ended up leaving on really good terms because Jayhawk Plastics was a great company to work for. Um, but it was, some, um, it, was, it was amazing selling recycled plastic furniture used from milk jugs and other plastic bottles, repurposing them, really good for the environment, really neat. And I learned a lot through that with sales. But I had to take over my dad's company the next day. And that was the longest week of my life. I had to set up, I had to make sure compliance wise because the investment business financial services is very regulated on a state and national level. Uh, FINRA is the national one, uh, SEC as well. And then the state, my state, you have your uh, regulators there too. So I had to make sure I was lined up. I had to do all these things. I had to help mom with things um, pertaining to dad's funeral. And it was just a lot. I remember staying up till some ridiculous hour Thursday night, the night before the wake, sleepwalking through Friday staying up till some crazy hour of the night before the funeral on Saturday morning. And then having to, I didn't have to, but I decided to speak and my sister spoke um, at uh, his funeral mass. And uh, his best friend was a guy who a lot of people in the community know is Mark, Mark Cuppy from childhood. They both grew up in Mission, Kansas in the same neighborhood, even though they went to different high schools. He gave a wonderful eulogy, but I need to collect myself emotionally. And that's that. And going through grandparents' funerals is a lot different than going through your own parent, especially when my dad was a marathoner in tip-top shape in his 60s, in better shape than his two sons were at the time, which, boy, that doesn't say much about me. But uh, it was something that unanticipated. And grieving, I learned a lot about grieving at that point. And it's a lot different. Their losses are tough, whether it, no matter which type of loss it is, especially if you want to frame it through two big ones of, you know, a prolonged illness versus a sudden loss. They're both difficult for different reasons. Um, but it was something that I pulled myself together and said, hey, I've got to do this. Preserve my dad's legacy for the sake of the clients, sake of our family. Um, preserve the value of this company. And the only way to do it was to step in. My family wanted me to sell it right away. But we talked about that earlier. You can't really sell that. If you sell the client base, client base is going to be thinking, well, wait a minute. He has no tie. Who's this person I'm going to? They'd have to sit down and meet with the new advisor, but it was something I ended up ultimately partnering with a childhood friend who heard my dad speak at Kansas State University and who I grew up with in my neighborhood. And he was, was one of the influences on him getting in the business. It's so ironic. He was actually driving past the crash site the week of the funeral when he heard about it 
like he called me a few days later. He's like, I drove by there with his family and it was just, it made sense. It was faith that we would end up partnering together uh, a ways after that, sitting down and discussing it. But he gave the funeral and everything. It was just amazing. And that's who I would end up um, selling out to, exercising my buyout a few years later. I just lost my passion. And emotionally, it was so hard day in, day out, because I'm thinking, am I doing things the right way? We were in a historic bear market. Um, and it was, so, sorry, bear market, bull market. Jeez, slip of the tongue. And things were great. I mean, I, I wondered at times if I could train a monkey to throw darts at a, at a dartboard, as they always say, and it, everything would come up aces. Um, but it was just something that I was able to keep a fair number of the clients and do a really good job. But I just determined in my heart, this isn't where I'm supposed to be, not under these circumstances. I'm supposed to have a gradual transition over 10 to 15 years and dad right off in the sunset. And I have all his knowledge. I had his knowledge, but I didn't always listen to it over the years. So I had to draw from the well upon everything he taught me. And it just was very uh, difficult for me to do, but it was something that I was so appreciative for that time. And I look back, it's one of my crowning achievements in life was that week of his funeral, taking over the business, coming from a position of having ice in my veins and being calm and getting it done and being there for our family in, in the ways however I could to help them uh, deal with, mitigate their emotions uh, amidst the tragic loss of my dad and his dad. So, Marcus, I, I just think that's just an incredible story. And to me, you're just very tough to be able to cope with the situation and to serve those clients while simultaneously trying to be a loving son and, you know, a loving brother to the other people in your family. And, you know, I, I know a few people like you in this sense that when there's a crisis, you keep a very cool head, a very level head. And um, you're also, though, a very emotional person. And so, I mean, this emotion has to come out later, but you're also a doer. And so I I just really respect something that you did afterward, which was to start a grief ministry, you know, because I, like you said, you know, I it just emotionally, I mean, this is devastating, but you couldn't exercise that emotion at the time. Could you tell us just a little bit about the grief ministry? So I started a grief ministry organization called Grieving Young Adults, and I was able to pull in uh, somebody who was dealt with grief and bereavement through Catholic charities. And they helped me with curriculum because I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I did that in 2015, the year after my dad passed. And you talk about a span of seven months where we lost our three remaining grandparents to my dad. And we lost my grandma, my mom's mom in 2001. Um, and so there's a lot of grief in a short period of time. Grief is something that is complicated, it's complex. To unpack it is hard enough, let alone to deal with multiple losses. So I went around and this is, there are great organizations out there, but I saw the demographics were different. There was next to nobody my age. I did find a program, a wonderful program uh, called Solace House here in town, which is a simply not state line. They deal, they were founded uh, by uh, families that had lost children. And so they do a lot of emphasis on children and all the way through teens, but they also have some grief for um, adults as well. And I did that, but I still thought to myself, I want to do something that solely focuses doesn't have a broad approach that other groups do. Groups do. So it focuses on people in their 20s and 30s and lost loved ones. So I started up, I got media coverage uh, from Fox 4 News, which was awesome. I did not expect them to take that story, um, but they profiled us and uh, even did a radio interview um, and did a video piece as well. And 
didn't do a full-fledged website, just did a Facebook group and had email distribution list and had some other print materials that were utilized and did some guest speaking engagements about it. But I did it. It wasn't about my ego. It was about helping others that are suffering that are one of the most pivotal points in their life. And we met, when we first met, I think we had around 20 some odd people and we met for quite a while. And then we switched from one church to another. And it was something that we made it clear. Yes, we're meeting in a church and faith is welcome, no matter what your faith is to talk about in group. But this is not a platform to per se try to influence others. It's to share about your experience and to help you get to a point of acceptance and grief. Um, there's a C.S. Lewis wrote a book um, called The Grief Observed. We talk about that. There's all sorts of other great grief resources out there. We did one called The Four Tasks of Mourning, which is a guided curriculum study um, that we walk people through several times. And then we came up with curriculum our own. We always had, for the most part, some sort of licensed social worker or licensed counselor. Um, we were all volunteers. No one was paid. Uh, but we would meet um, twice a month, first and third Mondays. And we'd meet from like 7 to 8.30. And it was just a wonderful organization. And we still put, we put resources online now. Um, and we'll send an email from time to time because of what's happened this year, the state of health in the world. We wanted to make sure we were aligned with what everybody else was doing group-wise that are serving other people. But it's something that we have people come. And you would hear stories that make my story look, I mean, it, you heard really graphic, difficult grief stories. So people unpacked and people opened up and shared because they felt comfortable. And it, let, let me be clear, it's not a comparison. We would always get in there and everyone would be supportive. Someone may have lost a grandfather. Someone may have lost their, their husband or wife. It was always, hey, we all are suffering. How can we help each other along this path, navigate it and be able to make the most of it and figure out how to have a lasting legacy in our life versus being stuck in neutral. And that's what a lot of people, has, a lot of people can fall prey to is, being stuck in neutral, saying, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. And every day it was as if, as if the person passed away the day before. There's a time to grieve and there's a time to move on. And when we say move on, I mean to be able to integrate that loved one or loved ones in your life in a lasting, memorable way to where you can still live your life to the fullest. And some people may take issue with that kind of statement, but I stand by it. And it's something that um, it's not meant to be heartless. It's just meant to be the way life is. Our loved ones want us to continue to live life. Yes, remember them, but in our own way. But it, and it's something that we can go on and help others. And it's something that I use that. The biggest thing that helped me was going to funerals now. I, I know exactly what to say. I never knew what to say before that, even with the passing of my grandparents. What do you say? Um, I tell them, here's what I do. Let me give you an example. The month after, my sister, one of her best friends from high school, his dad passed away from, I think it was cancer. I don't know what, what type. And their funeral was in Lenexa. And I was the first person in line at the wake. That was not on purpose. It just happened that way. And I walked up and they said, we know exactly what you're feeling and what you've been through. And I was like, I know I get it. And I, I was like, I feel for you. I'm going to follow up with you in two weeks is always my standard thing. You don't, you don't remember, and this is my experience. Let me preface with that. Necessarily the funeral day, the wake, all that stuff that week. And the people that showed up, you remember the people that follow up after that, that beyond the bringing of a quiche or casserole, I think it's casseroles, so many casseroles, so many lasagnas that are brought family wise. It's sort of like a baby train where I think it's, I think they both have the same kind of similarities, but they, you don't remember that. You remember the people that, follow, I remember the people that asked me a year later, Hey, how are you doing? I remember the people that asked two weeks later, how are you doing? And for some reason, two weeks was a weird time. I don't know where I came up with that arbitrarily, but it was something I tell people the first several days, 
people are going to say things and then they'll see, say it from time to time. But you remember the important anniversaries for people. You remember things and that creates connection with people. It's that shared vulnerability that um, Brene Brown, who's a notable speaker and does TED Talks in the country, would say. And that's what I, that's what I do. I don't have all the answers for them. I can't take away their sorrow. I tell them, yeah, ball, cry your eyes out, do all this, what you need to do to process your emotions and, and figure out what your new path is in life when you're a changed world. But it's something I don't have all the answers. I just listen and show I care. And when I follow up two weeks later, it's, I put some on my calendar. They're like, whoa, you really weren't, weren't just saying it. You did follow up because as things die down, people forget and people aren't going to ask as often, if at all. And it's something you don't, it's almost as if your loved one is forgotten by those people. It's not truly an outside out of mind, but it can be sort of summed up in that way. Um, that's, that's what I've learned to do and it works really well. So if I see anybody pass away, I send them a heartfelt note and then I just tell them, Hey, I'm going to follow up and I'm going to check on you. Can I mail you a book on grief? Can I provide you some grief books to read when you're ready? You're welcome to come to group all these open invitations to make them feel part of it versus, Oh, I'm so sorry. That's such a generic thing to say. And the thing is, I'm not going to, I'm not criticizing those people say it. It's just a lot of people don't know what to say. So I've used this as an opportunity through my own grief to educate people on how to interact with people when they're going through grief. So if you were going through grief right now, Tim, and you were short with me on the phone uh, tomorrow, I wouldn't be like, well, that Tim, geez, what is he doing? I'd be like, you know, this is grief manifesting itself through Tim's behavior. There's a radical empathy and understanding that's set in that has helped me in my life become a much better person and really go out and serve others and use my time, talents, and treasures, not to use that cliche too. I know it's thrown around a lot, but I've really allowed, been allowed me to go out and spread my wings and to make the most of my time on this earth and, and to help others. And I'm so grateful for that and to see their point of view because I was very rigid for many years and it sort of brought me away from that and helped me to be, to say, Hey, we don't know what's going on with somebody. And it's really helped me in teaching, um, especially when kids, might be not exactly doing what they should be doing in class, in disrupted class, um, or you hear about it from another teacher. So I digress. Oh. No, no, Marcus, that was just absolutely wonderful. And I, I just want to see if I could summarize a few of the key points because I would like to be a better man, and I think I could if I just adopted a few of the things that you said. I think one of the key things was the mark your calendar for two weeks from now and remember that person, just the fact that you're giving them a call, that's got to be monumental because, you know, two weeks seems like about the time that maybe the dust would start to settle just a little bit. And uh, immediately when somebody dies, there's an outpouring of love and there's a big community. And I, I think it sort of helps people. It sort of tides them over. And then four or five days later, after everybody's gone, then you're left by yourself and you, you just have this hollowness in your heart and, and where is anybody? So for you to come back in two weeks later and then basically to just, I guess the second thing is just really listen to the person. Just really listen. But, but if people actually want anything, then I guess the invitation to come to the grief meeting and or the invitation to maybe look at a grief book, that's pretty powerful too. I mean, those are kind of the three big points that I'm getting out of this. Um, that That's just terrific. That's just terrific what you're saying, Marcus. 
So yeah, it's, it's something, Tim, it's not to interrupt you, but it's something that it helps you have a complete picture of life is the way I, I think I can best frame it. I felt like I didn't have tunnel vision, but I felt like I still had a lot of my eyes I wasn't using in life to see the world around me and the people I was interacting with. And I think that really helped me to completely open up and to be able to have better interactions, better relationships with people um, and so forth going forward. And I've, I've been able to really yield the benefits of what was otherwise a tragic situation. And life is what we make of it. And I could sit here and feel sorry for myself. Yeah, was that awful that happened to our family? Yes, but you know, are, am I going to make lemonade out of that lemon or am I going to let the lemon juice just burn my eye perpetually? And it's just one of those things. I made a choice and I said, I'm going to go through, I'm going to grieve accordingly, but here I'm going to help others. And if somebody even just needs a counsel recommendation, they don't care what I have to say, fine, I'll give them a great counsel recommendation. It could be a little gesture that makes a huge difference in people's lives. Even just asking how they're doing, they could have a horrible day where they were triggered and they thought, oh my gosh, just remind me of my loved one. And you ask, you do that little gesture, you ask about how their day is going, or you say, hey, I was thinking about you. Boom, makes a world of difference. And that can be extrapolated to the educational environment. It can be extrapolated to corporate America, anything, wherever you work or whoever you're dealing with. Um, I think it's something that with the hustle and bustle, with the digital age, with everything um, going on, it's easy to lose sight of those uh, small mundane things that we can be doing to make the world a better place. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Well, let me ask just a little bit about your social planning. We haven't talked about that just yet, but I'm just very curious. Uh, to me, you're kind of a uh, social events planner. You're, you're sort of a kind of an excellent host. Uh, you bring people together, you get things going. Um, how do you do that? I think a lot of people find that type of leadership to be just completely mysterious to them. <laughs> uh, to me, the formula is not some something analogous to a quadratic equation or any one of those great formulas that we had to learn in uh, physics. It's something that um, cultivating... Um, relationships through a genuine and sincere manner and doing things the right way, have safeguarding reputation and coming up with creative, unique ideas is key. You may not be the most creative person in the world. I wasn't in first grade art class. I was supposed to draw a barn in a field and I ended up with airplanes dive bombing the barn, which looked like nothing. Didn't even look like airplanes. I mean, my creativity just was not there in art in some other areas, but I've found other ways to, um, unleash that creativity and really, um, show show the ability of that to other people and something that growing up I wasn't always like that I was social I mean I was the kid that uh, was organizing stuff but I was nowhere near as social as I became in college and beyond I think college is when I really turned the corner I joined a fraternity no that doesn't necessarily mean that's what defined me uh, I hung out with a lot of people that worked in fraternity or sorority but it was something that I always wanted to do things so it's like hey let's do this let's go on a road trip hey let's um Let's get pizza at midnight and then have a study session. Let's go um, and see how many pancakes we can eat. Let's, I mean, just all sorts of stuff. And it wasn't anything that was lavish uh, by any means. It was just things that were like intriguing to people. And they thought, oh, well, shoot, let's do this. And um, just came up with a lot of different ideas like that. And I would pass them out. 
sometimes I would. Sometimes people would be like, oh, that was not a good idea at all, Marcus. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't replicate it. I went back to the drawing board. But even after college, I did the same thing. We would have um, a bunch of us friends got jobs in Dallas and moved over from Fort Worth, Texas. And we lived in a place I collectively deemed Melrose Place because so many of us knew each other in this beautiful apartment complex right on the east side of the airfield of Love Field or Southwest headquarters at. And I would organize stuff. It wouldn't be necessarily every Friday, but we'd have a bunch of our college friends come over there. We'd do readings. I was writing a book at the time that I got writer's block on about my life story. And we'd do readings and we'd cook out. It wasn't just to sit around and talk and eat. It was, there was a lot of just liveliness to what we do. It would, that was the best way to characterize it. And I did that over the years. It could be even playing co-ed kickball. It could be trivia the last couple of years. Um, you name it. I was just always trying to get people excited about doing things, getting friend groups to cross over, getting um, people that I just met to come out and say, hey, why don't you come meet some neat people? You're new to town. It was that inclusion, that welcoming, that friendliness, the approach, a couple with the safeguarding reputation and treating others with dignity, love and respect that really got me um, on that trajectory with my social life. And it's something that I pride myself on that. Of course, there are people out there in the world that don't think the best of me. That, to me, I, if you don't have some people like that, then you're not doing things right, is what I was always told. Um, but it's something that I think on the whole, people are, well, I have my downfalls in, in other areas, just like anybody else. Socially, I've always seemed to have gotten it right and done a good job of bringing people together because people think, hey, this is going to be fun. Or, hey, you know, what twist does Marcus have up his sleeve? And it's nothing, I'm not anything that's just the best thing since, I'm not the best thing since sliced bread, but I just have always found a way by fine-tuning my approach, which can also be applied in business and other areas of life, um, just constantly trying to evolve and become better and better. Deming, Charles Deming from college, the model of continuous improvement is just at play, and it seems to emanate throughout the fabric of my entire life, and my social arena is no different. So, Okay. Oh, that's pretty awesome. I want to ask you just a few questions. I sort of want to step back and look at the big picture um, just about your life, but I think it might also constitute some advice for other people at the same time. I guess my first question is going to be, how do you know when it's time to switch a job? Because you've had a lot of consistency where you might be with a company for three, four, five years, but on the other hand, you've worked for a lot of companies and you've lived in many places. How do you know when it's time to switch? I'm going to speak from, I could, I could take anyone who understands on this. I'm going to speak from a general point of view because I know the audience has all sorts of different beliefs and I would be respectful of that. So if you believe in a higher power, what I would say is, you know, you do whatever you need to do with your decision-making process while taking that into consideration. And I'm speaking very generally, but if that is something that is at the top forefront of your mind, most important part of your life, then let that particular influence lead you where you're supposed to go. That will help you combine with quiet reflection. Quiet reflection can be done regardless if you believe in a higher power or not. Um, and it's with that, I we've talked to you and I before, pros and cons are sort of outdated. Um, there's other better ways of going about, about that process. To me, it's something, there are signs out there. Think of the selling process. There are buy signals from customers. There are signs out there. Maybe all of a sudden you are have worked at a wonderful young company that, much like myself, but it's changed and you've got some new leadership. 
you see they're changing things. They're making you clock in, clock out. They're making you account for every second. They're making you do some things that go against your values. If you're in a company that goes against your values, you've got to ask yourself, is this really worth it on my conscience when I have a hard time sleeping at night with the decisions I made? And that's not an indictment of any particular company. It's just, you're going to be faced with those moral conundrums at work at times. Or are you going to work with a company that aligns with you? It doesn't have to align with everything, but the key basics, they align with you. Um, so to me, it's, do I fit in? Am I growing in the company? If I'm not, do I need to be looking at other opportunities? Do I need to sit down and have that conversation with my manager and with other people about how I can grow, how I can be developed, that I'm not being groomed properly, that I'm a bit bored, walk through that. That does come with risks, depending on the company you're at, because uh, then it may be setting yourself up in the future uh, for some challenges. But sitting down with your manager, maybe you talk with family and say, hey, do you see a difference in me? And they might say, yeah, Tim, you just don't seem to have the spring to your step anymore. What's going on? Is it work or do you, or have you plateaued in your workouts? What's going on? Do you feel like um, maybe you lost a recent good friendship? What is going on? And if you say, well, it's, it's work. A lot of times we can answer it ourselves. We know the answer, but we don't have the courage to take the step out of our own skin mm. to uh, have a change. So you might pretty much know that you're done with a company in your heart, but then your head comes in and then your head just goes into denial and says, mm -hmm. hey, just suck it up, buttercup. It's okay. Even though things yeah. are just flat out not okay. So I think that's where you basically mentioned that's kind of the role of prayer, but also of quiet reflection. Mm -hmm. And then just having the courage to follow through on what you really believe. You're right. And it's something that I think back to my dad's story. He was working... Um, at a company, and he, he thought to himself, you know, now's the time I've got uh, 12, no, 10 years experience in the financial services world in various capacities. It's time to go. He, he thought to himself, you know, I don't really align with the company per se. I'm, I'm ready to go a different direction and carve out my own path. It is risky as can be to go from corporate to start your own company, especially when you've got two young kids. Yes, my mom worked as a teacher for many decades, but that is a really risky proposition. And, but a lot of times people don't have, I'm not going to say guts. I don't like that term. They don't want to take that calculated risk. They'd rather go the, what they think is the proverbial easier route, stable route, staying at corporate or staying in a company, not going corporate to corporate. Oh, I put in this many years. I'm going to, I'm not going to get, the, I'm not going to have this great stock option plan anymore. I'm going to have to go to somewhere else where it doesn't have quite the plan. Well, if you're happy, but you're still socking money away, does it even matter? No. You can't put a price on your peace of mind and your happiness. And it's something that uh, my dad did that, made that switch. And my mom's like, you? <laughs> I remember our grandparents. I don't think my mom's parents really <laughs> thought that was the best move. But my dad said, you know, I'm going to do this for the sake of my family. And that was very courageous going against probably what his in-laws thought was a safe route of staying at the bigger financial firm. My mom supported him and that's what mattered. And he knew in his heart that's what he was supposed to do. And that's the thing. If you know in your heart and your head, that's what you're supposed to do. Map out a path. Don't just do it recklessly and do it. Make it a reality. Keep it quiet, though. Only let the people know that you can, or tried and true that you can trust, know about that. Because you don't want to jeopardize your current position in the company. And you want to make sure you live on good terms. You're not saying things that are negative, that you're truly doing things the right way um, to exit gracefully, to borrow the term from earlier, from Homecoming's Financial. But it's something that a lot of people don't do it because they think, oh, my gosh, well, I've got a wife and five kids, they're dependent upon me. Um, 
or I have um, an aging uh, parent that I need to help them out as well. We can get focused on that and we can become paralyzed and not make the right decision and regret it later on and have a bunch of resentment build up. Or we can make the decision and trust that in our heart, things are going to work out. Um, we may have to tie in our belts, make some changes in life, some sacrifices. Oh, well, but if we've got our peace of mind, everybody in our life benefits around us, whether it's people that are less fortunate we're trying to serve, or whether it's our friends, whether it's our family, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, everybody benefits when we're in a good frame of mind. And it's part of that taking care of ourselves. And you hear about so many people, I'm sure you do, I do, that complain perpetually about their position. And I say, don't complain, I'll go do something about it. I will listen because I care about you, but go do something about it. I don't want to hear complaints for years on end. Go do something about it. And there's no set timeline of how long that you should be able to complain, but it's something that we get stuck in neutral and we just say, we don't know any better. So we just stay in that because that's what we know. We're afraid of the future. Fear and fear and worry are like a rocking chair. Someone told me years ago, they keep us in place and they give us nothing. Huh. So are we going to be guided by fear and worry? Or are we going to be guided by the fact that we believe in our own abilities and we're going to be methodical. We're going to make well-thought-out decisions and take calculated risks in our lives. The risk tolerance varies from person to person. Like, I can be a fairly high risk taker, but maybe somebody else isn't. Maybe they have half as much of tolerance. Make, take the risks that you're willing to sleep with at night accordingly, but don't say, oh, well, I'm worried that if I move to company XYZ in the medical profession, leaving their biggest rival, that they may lay me off in a year. No, no, no. If you're going in thinking you're going to fail from the get-go or something adverse is going to happen, then it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's something that we have to have the right from grind. We need to be healthy mentally and physically, and we need to have the right supports in place, positive influences. We need to know our abilities and what we can and can't do. And we need to fully comprehend uh, the organization we're working for or the field we're looking to get into um, or how, what kind of company we want to start, what it's going to take the shape of. We do our homework. You'll end up where you're supposed to be. And that's why, that's why I'm where I'm at in teaching. I, ne- I didn't envision this. I was supposed to be running a financial firm the rest of my life. There's a lot of moving pieces, Marcus, in what you said. And I think what you said was really, really interesting and really, really good. Um, let me also ask about passion versus doing maybe what is necessary or what your effort is. You know, some people will say follow your passion is the best advice, but I've also heard some people like Mike Rowe say follow your passion is the worst advice, that you're just better off following your effort and then doing something that's really useful for other people. You know, for example, he's a big promoter of blue-collar jobs. I've looked up a lot of blue-collar jobs. Elevator repairman pays basically double the national median income. Last time I looked it up, the median income in the United States is around 52000 The top 10% of elevator repairmen are making $105,000. He has 20 jobs that all range from the median all the way up to $110,000. So, so all that being said, what do you think? When somebody says, follow your passion, do you think, well, what do you think? And then when somebody else says, no, that's terrible advice, what do you think? Uh, I think there are circumstances that warrant us following our efforts. Um, Let me give you a case in point. Let's say your husband and wife and you have a child that has an orphan disease and it costs a fortune for your child to get treated. You have to do whatever you need to do to make the money that insurance may or may not cover, or even if they leave you with a high co-insurance provision 
to make sure your child gets the right treatment, if that's a priority to you. Um, you can't just follow your passion. If your passion is to go study whales and maybe get paid X, Y, Z a year, and that covers a 10th of your child's cost, that isn't going to cut it. That may be your passion. So maybe what you do is in your mind, follow my pro and say, I'm going to go study whales for a, a week a year to keep my bearings amidst this, amidst this challenging disease that my child's dealing with. That's what I'm going to do to keep it together. But I'm going to work in a job that I may not be the most keen on to help make sure our family can provide. It could be a husband wife thing. It could be whatever. It could be one. Depends on what the roles are. But it's something that there are times where I think is necessary. But I think you can follow your passion. But I think it's case by case basis. We just don't know the, the various circumstances surrounding people's lives. Um, it's something you brought up. Something that I have wanted to would love to see more emphasized in schools. And I know it's a bit of a controversial viewpoint. I wrote a curriculum unit on careers and career day. I speak at career day. I have spoke for several years at a career day in one of the high schools here in Kansas City. And I tell kids about this. Consider. And in my classes and I guess speaking engagements, consider trades, consider vocations. If you know, I don't want to do another four or five X number of years school and college, and you're gifted with your hands, consider carpentry coming out of high school, consider electrician, consider a plumber, consider an elevator repairman. There's dignity in all work. And I think the way things are portrayed in mainstream media and society is sometimes that we lose sight of that. We think, oh, well, I've got to go be a professional athlete or celebrity, or I've got to be an exec of a pharmaceutical company, or I've got to be an exec at Cerner, or I've got to um, be an exec at Hallmark, or I've got to work for an NFL team. Or I've, we, we, we strive for all this stuff, but we miss out on all these diamonds in the rough. And it's something where I have two friends right now that are in that. Um, one is an electrician, another's a plumber. And they are on a great trajectory. They're very young. And by the time they're our age, Tim, around our age, they're going to be sitting really pretty. And they are, and here's the thing, they could have gone the safe corporate route on a college and used their college degree. They, one of them didn't go to college. One of them did, has not used his degree and decided to go um, the plumbing route. And it's paying huge dividends after a couple of years. But it's something that opening kids' eyes to look at all of them is important. Um, as they start to chart things out because it's happening at younger and younger ages, especially with specialized high schools like in Olathe where you go to a high school that maybe has an engineering focus. Um, when you have districts doing that, they're making kids decide. It's the same with everything, with college choices, with careers, with sports. You're having to choose a younger and younger age. So it's important that if they know they want to be a carpenter, that maybe they go out, maybe they watch the carpenter that comes to their house and ask him or her questions. Maybe they see the electrician that comes to their house and ask him or her questions or ask their family, hey, can I go um, shadow? Can we go shadow an electrician for a day? Um, can we go shadow a welder? I mean, there's shortages in all the... stop gaps. You can have a temporary period of time where you're following your efforts and then you shift your passion. Maybe um, we'll go back to you, Tim. Maybe you decide, hey, I want to found, uh, found a, a my own farm, organic farm, sustainable farm. Well, right now it may not be feasible for you, but maybe you say, okay, here's my 10-year plan. I'm going to start this in 10 years. And you do use your efforts now to get reap as much as you can of what you sow, no pun intended. And then you get that 10-year point and you have everything mapped out to start that farm. 
and you're you're building for the future, working towards your passion, and even thinking beyond that for when you hang it up and you're no longer working. So I think it can be a multi-pronged approach that can be taken. I don't think the passion gets you in trouble. I think it gets you in trouble when you don't see the forest through the trees. I'm gonna give you a case in point. Let's say, um, let me go back. Uh, I brought this up the other day. I bring up an interesting fact in my class every day. I told them McDonald's had pizza ovens, I believe it was the late 1990s. That was a huge failed experiment. They got away from what they were good at. They got away from their efforts with Happy Meals, milkshakes, McNuggets, um, I almost said Whopper, that's Burger King. Uh, They got away from that because they thought, hey, we want a piece of the pizza market. They followed followed their passion in food, but they got into something they knew next to nothing about and they fell on their face. Those pizza ovens were there for a hot minute. That's it. Do you remember those at all? No, not in the slightest. See, exactly. So McDonald's, one of the greatest fast food chains in the country, um, thanks to Ray Kroc's efforts back in the day, deviates from that. That's when we get in trouble with our passion. Maybe we have a great idea, but then we roll um, our funds, our capital from a great idea into another idea, and it's failing, it's failing, it's failing. We pump more money into it. That's where our passion can get us into trouble. When we don't see the decline of a business, or maybe we enter into an industry that is already matured, and we think, hey, we're going to have exponential growth year over year. You're not going to have that happen in a mature industry. Not setting realistic expectations, not recognizing the indicators beyond the, the various quantitative metrics. There's a lot of things we need to have a complete view. We always need to have a beat on what's going on with our industry beyond. So it's we think of things that the elasticity of demand. If I'm inventing a product and we're in a bear stock market and things are just not going well, I better better believe that consumers are going to prioritize that and include that in their milk and their eggs and their other things that they normally buy. I can't buy a luxury. I can't create a luxury product and expect there to be demand already built in. Just being able to recognize everything and having a wherewithal and awareness is key uh, in following your passion. Because if you don't, it can cause a major issue. Um, I think of a client um, that invested money in a startup and didn't think it was a good idea at all. And warned them, like, no, no, this is going to be a fail-proof plan. There's no such thing as a fail-proof plan. Even Mark Zuckerberg can... ends on person-by-person basis. You cut out with, uh, I'll have to do a little editing. You said even Mark Zuckerberg... Take it from there. Even Mark Zuckerberg um, can lose his Facebook empire. Even Jeff Bezos can lose the Amazon empire. Even Bill Gates, despite countless years of success um, through his creativity and products, it can be gone in a heartbeat. And it's something that if we, it, our passion can cost us if we don't see the signs. It's not going to happen when I say in a heartbeat. I'm using an idiom there, but it's something that, it can, it can occur. Nobody, nobody's infallible. There's no such thing as a fail-proof plan. Bill Gates can maybe say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to go invest all this money in this one idea, and it fails and he loses everything. And all he's got is the house, his clothes, and maybe whatever's in his checking. I mean, things can happen, and that's the thing. We have to keep our passion in check, and you're asking about, okay, there's really not an all-or-nothing proposition. It doesn't have to be row or not, not or, or the this is philosophy. It can be a blend of the two, but it's something that just like with investing, you can't be ruled by emotion. You can have emotion be 
a key data point, but you cannot be ruled by it. When you're ruled by it, it leads to um, very daunting challenges and difficult situations to where you can go down a, a path that can lead you to failure in that sense, in that endeavor, in your career, in your job, in running a company. So to me, it's keeping emotions in check, having emotional regulation at all times and being open to always to new ideas and continuously improving and having a beat on the market and on your career and your industry that will keep you on the right track and not let passion get out of control. And I hope I did not speak in a circular fashion. <laughs> no, it was, it's great. Uh, it just really struck me that your training as an investor has overtaken your life because you believe in a rational look at things, but you also believe in taking everything into account. So you're kind of trying to create a comprehensive system based on logic and rationality where emotion will come into play, but emotion is never allowed to dominate. Would that be a fair way of summing up how you think? You there? Uh, I think we got you back. Would that, yes. be a, would that be a fair way of summing up how you think? The comprehensive view. Yeah, I, I think what you're starting, the path you're heading down with your your uh, logic of thought made sense. And I'm sure I agree with it. Um, it's something we talk about thinking through shades of gray. And I think it does apply in life. Just like today, uh, we're doing a mental health unit in school. And one of my students said, you know, it's something that life in moderation, everything in moderation. And kids are like, no, no, no. I was like, and, and I brought up, I was like, exactly right. I was like, if you drink too much water, your body cannot take it. It can lead to you passing away. If I mean, there's all sorts, that's a bit of a drastic example, but there's life in moderation, passion in moderation. It doesn't, it allows you to temper expectation and allow you to have a part of it in your life, but not too much to where it's the dominating driving influence in your life. Marcus, this has just been absolutely fascinating. I just have two last questions for you. Yes. The first one is, what should I have asked that I did not? I think you should have. I don't like the word should have, would have, could have. Those kind of words, I, I try not to include my vocabulary, if at all possible. But what one question that is relevant that didn't come up would have been um, what is the time of your life where you experienced failure and how did you bounce back from it? And what was the time in life where your morals were uh, put to the test and how did you respond in what way? And what did you learn from it? Uh, questions along those sort of lines. I mean, I know we talked about some overarching themes that would have applied to the, to my answers there, but it could have added some additional granular perspective that would have unlocked some value in a different way uh, for whoever is listening to. Uh, All right, well, let's go for it. Tell me a story. Which, where do you want to start? Which, you, which one, which question? You choose. I, I will go where you follow, sir. Um, let's talk about when morals were put to the test. As a child, um, we all did different things to, to make money or we had an allowance. I did not have an allowance. I grew up in a household where our parents said, Chores, which usually were at 7 a.m. with the um, the record player playing um, 60s music, 
where uh, what you paid, the price you paid for living under in, under our parents' roof and for having clothes and food and and, and shelter and so forth. Well, I um, would take my money I made and go up, ride my bike to the bank. Remember one day I took money up there and I would deposit change and other things into my bank account. And I was given the receipt back, but I didn't really fully look at it. And I remember I left the bank and it was uh, Valley View, which is now Security Bank. If you can't say, I remember this vividly, 103rd and Maston in Oval Park, 103rd and 69 Highway. And I was leaving on my bike and I noticed, I looked down at the receipt, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, this isn't correct. This is not what I deposited. This is not what I deposited. And so I went back and I told them that and, and got them to correct it. Would that banker have been in my favor like a monopoly? Uh, I, I don't know, I, maybe, but it was the right thing to do. What, I, I'm, and it was something that as a kid, I would have loved to have the extra, I think it was 10 bucks. would love to have the extra 10 bucks in my account, but it was not right for me to take money that was not mine, all because somebody made a mathematical um, calculation that wasn't correct. And I just remember going back and the teller was like, what are you doing? Like, just keep, like, they just were surprised. And I can think of one other situation like that. I'll tell one other, just to piggyback off that. As an adult, I left uh, Blue Moose and Prairie Village. It was very embarrassing and I forgot to pay. And I was by myself and I got home and I called them. And I was like, you know, I forgot to pay. I was sitting at such, such table. I don't know what section they're like. They're like, Oh, don't, they said something affected. Oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to come across town right off. It's like, no, I was like, I need to pay for this. I had a meal at your establishment. I need to pay for this. I went across town and paid for the meal. I mean, it's just something that I'm not anybody that's a world beater or a hero because of his actions. It was just the right thing to do. And my morals were put to the test. That wasn't a cheap meal, Blue Moose. But, you know, it, it was the right thing to do for me to take my time and drive over there and to make them whole. They shouldn't have to eat that cost because I walked out on a meal. It wasn't an intentional walkout, let me be clear. I just had a, 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 a brain lapse. But those are two instances where morals were put to the test uh, in that sense. Um, I also, um, as for a failure and how I dealt with it, um, I've, had, I've failed many times in life. And, and this is where you really are able to, it's a good litmus test of someone's character. Let's think back here. I was a senior year of high school, um, our varsity golf team, which I played on, we kept a score the entire season. So you had a stroke average and the best boys on the team got to play in every tournament. So one week, if you had a bad week of practice, you weren't going to necessarily play in the tournament. And we jockeyed for positions all the time. I uh, played against a guy who's a buddy of mine, so concerned my buddy, and um, another kid who I haven't talked to in years, but he was a good person too. And we were so close in stroke average that coach decided to have a playoff to see who went to state, regionals and state. And we played nine holes one last time. And I ended up the last couple holes not playing very well. And I lost out on my chance my senior year to go to state. And we would do very well in state. Not that that matters. It actually made it feel worse. But I failed in my mind. And I thought to myself, as I'm going to take my clothes to my car, oh my gosh, what just happened? And it was one of those things that, well, I didn't go on to be an accomplished golfer after that. I did use it to sort of light a fire under myself going forward. No matter what I did, it wasn't going to be viewed through the lens of failure. It's going to be viewed as this wasn't supposed to be part of my plan. Mm. It wasn't supposed to be part of my plan. It was supposed to be my other teammate who went to state who I get together with from time to time here still to this day. It was his plan for him to go to state. He had earned it, not me. 
I wasn't the best. Plain and simple. It wasn't a matter of fairness. I just it wasn't the best. It wasn't the plans. So figuring out an alternative path because that wasn't the cards. I'll give you one other example. I lost a fraternity uh, election and I did worked really hard to campaign. I thought I was cut out for the challenge to be treasurer and it was painful. I lost by one vote. One oh, vote. Geez. Wow. And it was something I want to be treasurer so, so bad. And the person that ran for it was a it was our first treasurer. I was a founding father of our fraternity chapter at our school. And I walked out of there just devastated. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was sad as, so sad as could be. And one of my fraternity brothers, who's still a really good friend to this day, he actually went on to found his own company recently. Successful entrepreneur. Uh, left corporate, stepped out of the shadows, despite having the young child and wife, who were wife. I applaud him for that side note. Um, it goes to the heart of my argument from earlier. He pulled me aside and he was younger than me. He was two years younger. And he said, you know, don't let this get you down. You got this. You should consider running in the future. You're a really great person. And he listed off some wonderful attributes about me. He didn't have to do that. He did that. And I ran the next year. He actually ran against me to find irony. He ran against me the next year and another fraternity brother did, but I won the election and I would serve as treasurer for a year. Had I said, woohoo, woe is me, gone into the victim mentality, there's no way I would have accomplished that. And I grew so much as a leader, as treasurer of the fraternity, coupled with being on the executive board and student government and having some broad sweeping legislation that changed our whole campus uh, through research, that that's really when I rose to the occasion as a leader. Those were, those were the times and it would never would have happened. It would have never have culminated in that event had I felt sorry for myself and I said, oh, well, I'm not meant to do anything. I'm a failure. It's all about having that optimism that is in check, that is commensurate with, with your life. Not too much optimism to where you make a motion-based decision. Again, it goes to the passion argument, but um, keeping and maintaining that optimism, that belief in myself uh, that kept me going and really put me on a good path and allowed me to have that door get opened to be treasured next year. So there's two examples in each other fence with moral conundrums and with um, setbacks in life. I like to use that versus failures um, and how I dealt with them and really helped me um, defining who I was. And it really helped me in those relationships with people that were involved in those situations um, in every instance that I, that I portrayed you. That's great. Marcus, you are a very entertaining storyteller and uh, there is a huge chunk of your story yet to be written. So this actually leads me to my final question, which with people tends to be my favorite question. Let's just fast forward to age 100 for you. And you are sitting on the front porch of your house. Um, your loving wife is holding your hand. Um, maybe children and grandchildren are in the picture. Um, you are looking back at a great life. What are you most excited by? What are you most humbled by in this great life that you've lived? I'm most excited by the fact that um, I had the opportunity to live 100 years and to have uh, all those experiences in life. And when I mean all, I don't just mean the good ones, just everything. And that I was able to um, just have that um, collective life that I did and look back on it. And the, what I'd be humbled by is the people that I impacted and who impacted me. It's a two-way street. It's not a, a stick my chest out, whoa, look what, not at all. It's, wow, 
those many people, that many people in life cared about me, um, whether they came in for a certain period of time or whether they were there for most of my life. Those, those people cared about me. They impacted me in that way. They molded me in this way. And especially near and dear will be family with that. And then the other way, oh, wow, this is amazing that these people, um, that I still impact them all the way till whenever my time is up. Um, it'd be something looking back, having a truly um, deep sense of in, introspection um, in that sense. And, and and looking at it that way, I it's if I make it to 100. I'll, I'll be, if, if I'm taken tonight, I'd be happy as could be. It's something that looking, looking at life, I always have that viewpoint. I want to live life to the fullest in a way that um, I look back, I have no regrets and that I truly live it with passion and purpose in an impactful way and doing things while doing things for the right reason and making sure I have my priorities straight. Marcus, that was just a wild ride. It was an adventure talking to you and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Tim, for having me tonight. I appreciate it. Awesome.